Hello, I'm Tom Hauser. Hands-free is now law of the land here in Minnesota. The new law prohibiting you from holding your phone while driving went into effect Thursday. This will be a hard habit to break for many drivers because many of us have been doing it for many years. Are you aware of the hands-free law? I literally was just talking about it. You don't know what I'm talking about? I said I literally was just talking about it. Yeah. That was probably a common conversation between law enforcement and drivers on the first day the hands-free cell phone law went into effect. But this stop by an Egan police officer took a strange turn when the driver admitted to texting about the new law while driving. She says, yeah, I was texting about the hands-free law. So she's actually violating the law by texting about the law. She received a $50 ticket. Egan police also used a motorcycle cop to spot violators because they can often get a better look at what people are doing in their vehicles. Did you know that we can't have our phone in our hand out here? This driver got off with a warning, but in most cases, there's a $50 ticket for the first offense and $275 for subsequent offenses. These people in this rotunda are leaders and they have led us to where we are today. The head of the Minnesota State Patrol thanked dozens of family members who've lost loved ones to distracted driving offenders including Karen Altman and Cassie Berkey, the mother and sister of 22-year-old Katie Berkey, who was killed by a distracted driver in 2017. Does today give you some hope this won't happen to someone else's daughter? I certainly hope so, because I wouldn't wish this on anyone. And I hope that people take into account, like, the family stories, and that it could really happen to anyone. In the last six years, 291 Minnesotans have been killed in distracted driving accidents. Minnesota is the 16th state to enact a hands-free cell phone law while driving. On Friday, Governor Walls also highlighted a new law that allows road construction workers to report drivers for violating directions, speeding, or otherwise driving unsafely in work zones. A few other new laws are now in effect as well. There will be new penalties for drivers who go too slow in the left lane, and you will not be able to use e-cigarettes in indoor places that already ban smoking. Family members will now be able to install granny cams in rooms of residents at assisted living facilities, and light rail train operators will be subject to the same traffic laws as other drivers. Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar has qualified to take part in the next round of Democratic presidential primary debates this fall. On Friday, Klobuchar's campaign announced she met both the polling threshold and the donor threshold to participate. She needed to poll at 2% or higher in at least four national polls approved by the DNC. She also needed to get donations from at least 130,000 unique donors. Klobuchar joins these eight other Democrats who made the cut as of Friday. They include Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, Beto O'Rourke, and Andrew Yang. Klobuchar's announcement comes just days after the second round of presidential debates in Detroit. She appeared on the first night, which was dominated by proposals from leading contenders Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Klobuchar was among the candidates questioning whether Medicare for All is a realistic proposal. She believes a health care public option is the way to go. Senator Sanders was actually on a public option bill last year, and that was Bernie the Medicaid 
public option bill that Senator Schatz introduced. Clearly, this is the easiest way to move forward quickly, and I want to get things done. People can't wait. I've got my friend uh, Nicole out there whose son was actually died trying to ration his insulin as a restaurant manager, and he died because he didn't have enough money to pay for it. She was referring to Nicole Smith-Hult of Minneapolis, who was at the debate. On the issue of gun control, Klobuchar said she'd take on the NRA on the issue of gun control after watching President Trump fail to do so. And I watched and wrote down when nine times he said he wanted universal background checks. The next day he goes and he meets with the NRA and he folds. As your president, I will not fold. I will make sure that we get universal background checks passed, the assault weapon ban, that we do something about magazines. Klobuchar had the fifth most speaking time during Tuesday's debate. She had far less screen time than Warren and Sanders. But she also came across as far more moderate and measured than most of the other candidates on stage. The second night of the debates saw Joe Biden and Kamala Harris on the same stage for a rematch. Biden is the front runner, so he was the main target for criticism among the other candidates, like Harris, Cory Booker, and Julian Castro. Another hot-button issue among candidates, including Senator Amy Klobuchar, is the price of prescription drugs. The Trump administration says it will set up a system to allow Americans to legally import lower-cost prescription drugs from Canada, a rare point of agreement between President Trump and the Alliance for a Better Minnesota. People are struggling to afford all different types of prescriptions, not just insulin, so many different drugs that people rely on to, that are life-saving drugs, that are drugs that they need to maintain and take care of their conditions have become so increasingly unaffordable. The move would weaken a long-standing ban that many pharmaceutical industry lobbyists have worked hard to protect. The proposal would allow states, wholesalers, and pharmacists to get FDA approval to import some medications that are also available here. But a drug industry lobby group claims patients would be at risk of receiving counterfeit or adulterated medications. The plan is still in the works, so it isn't clear yet which prescription drugs would qualify or how soon consumers could see results. Next on that issue, state lawmakers have come up with a way to get emergency insulin to Minnesotans, but they're still not sure how to pay for it. We'll have state senators Matt Little and Scott Jensen here in studio to talk about the plan, its challenges, and the possibility of a special session called by the governor. State lawmakers have agreed to a plan to get emergency insulin to Minnesotans, but they haven't decided how it will be paid for. The issue has Governor Walls willing to call a special session this month to get the details hammered out. The program would provide a 20-day supply to people who have current or past prescriptions for insulin, but they must meet financial requirements. Some could get up to two months of insulin depending on their financial circumstances. Governor Walls says he supports a fee on drug makers to help pay for insulin assistance. Today, we have two state senators in studio with us who've been working on the Emergency Insulin Act, DFL Senator Matt Little of Lakeville and Republican Senator Scott Jensen of Chaska. Thank you both uh, for being here. I know you spent a lot of time on this during the regular session. Uh, you would like to see something happen on this in a special session. Uh, but for right now, uh, Senator Jensen, I'll start with you. Where does this tentative agreement, without really a funding source yet, where does it stand? What would it do? I think the three key ingredients of any emergency insulin assistance program centers around eligibility criteria, 
a sustainable funding source and a pharmacy network that's already in place. Because at the end of the day, we've got folks that need insulin, so someone's gonna have to be able to give them a pen or a vial of insulin and deliver it to their hands. So you need to have a robust pharmacy network. Uh, Senator Little has done a lot of hard work on trying to pull together an ad hoc group, tried to work quietly behind the scenes. And I think we've arrived at eligibility criteria that are the best we've done since the whole idea got floated in January. And I think we got the pharmacy network. The funding source, I think there, that's where we, we still need to get some work done. But from my perspective, we need the help of some of the leaders in both the House and the Senate and the Governor's office because, and, I, and I'll let Senator Little speak for himself, but to me, that's not a deal breaker. We need to get a, a sustainable, reliable funding source, one that's not captured in the courts. We can do it. And Senator Little, I, I know you've got a bipartisan group, and mm -hmm. that's the key, especially when you're looking for a funding source because you need Democrats and Republicans to come together on a compromised way to pay for anything, whether it be insulin or a, or a highway. Yeah, I think uh, you're right. We've got a, bi a bipartisan, bicameral group that has been working for the last two months after session to come up with um, effective and good eligibility requirements as well as a delivery mechanism. Uh, we've come too far to have funding be the hurdle that's too high. Um, I think we can get it done. Um, you know, Walls, Governor Walls and uh, Speaker Hortman have been pretty clear that the manufacturers need to be involved in paying for that uh, program uh, in some form or manner. So I think, um, you know, if we have, uh, you know, Senator Gazelka step up with a, an offer, we can, we can have serious talks about funding. And many Republicans have talked about using existing uh, funds uh, from the Health Care Access Fund. Uh, Democrats are against that. Why? Uh, because that's taxpayer money. We think that the uh, uh, manufacturers that have caused this crisis with their high prices should be responsible for to help solve it. Uh, and I think that stands to reason. Um, if they would lower their prices, we wouldn't have uh, any need whatsoever for an emergency insulin program. But uh, if they're not going to lower their prices, then they should participate with some sort of fee uh, to help get emergency insulin into the hands of people who need it. Could there be some kind of a hybrid solution here? Maybe a, a small fee on pharmaceutical companies and some money from the Health Care Access Fund or some other pot of money? Tom, I think you hit it right on the head. That's where we need to land. I agree. We want the manufacturers participating in the same way that we sort of tapped into them in the opiate bill. But I think that if all we do is as Senator Little said, we've come too far to let this fail. If all we do is just tap into the pharmaceutical manufacturers for the dollars and we end up in court, then we haven't really touched those folks out there like Alex Smith. That's the objective. So if we could do both, and it's possible that the pharmaceutical manufacturers might really be the ones that have to step up and take over after that 20-day or that two months. And maybe they have to have a robust, broad-based patient assistance program that if it meets all the criteria that Senator Little and Senator Benson and some of the other senators are key players in this that they want, maybe that's where we get that partnership. And Senator Little, I know you've had hearings on this. We have some video from a hearing you had where you had uh, Alex Smith's uh, mother there and others. And if we can hold this video up long enough to see some of the, the vials of, of insulin. And it astounded me when I was at this hearing how much money they said they were paying for those little vials of insulin. Yeah, absolutely. You can make a vial of insulin right now uh, for anywhere between $3 and $7. And it's selling uh, to people who need it for over $300. Uh, that's, in my opinion, immoral. And you are a physician, uh, Senator Jensen. You see firsthand, uh, I'm, I'm sure, in your practice, uh, people who come to you and say, I just I don't have the money to pay for this. Uh, or you at least, I'm sure, have colleagues who have seen that. That's got to be heartbreaking as a as a physician, and I'm sure you do what you can to try to help them. 
It is, and I probably deal with the issue of insulin every day in terms of the issue of finances and that. That's probably maybe a more weekly or monthly thing. But I do think we have to turn a little bit of a bright light on physician behavior on this one too. Are we asking our patients when we write out a prescription, are you gonna be able to afford this? Do you know what your insurance plan does here? Because I think sometimes we forget that we're supposed to be caring for the patient. We're not just supposed to be applying some scientific concept to a client. And if we're giving them the prescription and we're not circling back and saying, you know, can we help you? We need to make sure you can get this insulin. I don't know that we're doing as good a job, much, as, good a job as we could be doing. Now, Senator Little, in your conversations with Governor Walls, uh, when might he be willing to call a special session? It sounds like he is willing to, but does he want there to be an agreement in place uh, so this doesn't turn into a, a real Donnybrook at the Capitol? I think he was pretty clear in his statement that if he's to call a special session, there has to be an agreement that manufacturers have a, a part to play in paying for this program. So I, I think he's been very clear on that, um, and uh, Speaker Hortman as well. So if, if we have a, a, some sort of offer from Senator Gazelka that involves manu insulin manufacturers paying for this, I think we'll have some serious movement on this legislation. And would you envision it as a one-day quick special session just to vote on a, a pre-agreement? Um, well, if Senator Jensen uh, and I were in charge of that special session, it would be about two or three minutes, and we'd have, we'd have this done. Um, but, yeah, it'll, it would only take a one-day session to, to get this through. I would be, as a, as a Capitol reporter, I would also be in favor of a two- or three-minute <laughs> special session. But I have to caution Senator a little, too, that even though we call it a bipartisan solution, if we don't have enough Republican support in the Senate and enough Democratic support in the House, it still won't get down. So it has to be more than two or three players on each side. We need to try to make sure that leadership says, okay, we've been involved, we're satisfied that we have something that will work. And I know Senator Benson and Representative Liebling, their players, Representative Halverson, we need all those folks involved. We really do. Uh, less than 30 seconds left. You have chosen not to run for re-election in 2020. I know it had to be a difficult decision. Uh, tell us about that decision and, and what you hope to accomplish in your remaining uh, time in office. Life balance. I mean, right now, my wife said some health challenges. We have four grandchildren and another one on the way, and all of them are two or under. Bottom line is Mary's not excited about another uh, term right away, and so I'm saying I'm with you. We've got to get you healthy. And I think on the other thing, I do clash a little bit with some of the hard right in the Republican Party, and I think there's people out there sort of hijacking our party, saying that we're this narrow. The Republican Party is bigger than that, and we have to be bigger than that. So I'm hoping that even if I'm not in the Senate, I can still help expand the, the guardrails in which we operate. Well, your common sense approach to politics will be missed, as will your medical expertise uh, in the Senate. But we have you around. Uh, we can kick you around for another session. Right? Amen. Amen. <laughs> right. Senator Jensen, Senator Little, thank you for being here. Still to come on at issue, Brian Melendez and Annette Meeks will join me here in studio. Political analysis is next. After nearly 10 years of effort, a hands-free cell phone law went into effect this week here in Minnesota. And if you don't think this is a life or death matter, listen to how emotionally the head of the state patrol talked about the families of victims of distracted driving who worked so hard to get this law passed. It is our quote of the week. When I look around at the faces that can get to me because I've been there where we knock on doors in the middle of the night, and we look at these faces and we see these people, these are our friends who have been struck head on by the tragedy of distracted driving. And if it weren't for them, we wouldn't be here today with that support.
I was at that news conference, and you know, state capital news conferences usually don't get very emotional, but when you have all of those family members lined up holding these big, almost life-size pictures of loved ones who were killed in distracted driving accidents, it really hits home. Joining me now to talk about that and other issues, Annette Meeks and Brian Melendez. The three of us have been around the Capitol for a long time. A lot of times people say, oh, the legislature, they don't do anything, you know, why, why should I pay attention to what goes on there? This is a good example of why you should pay attention, because you can go and make change uh, in the state of Minnesota if you go and lobby for something you truly believe in. I, I can guarantee you none of these families wanted to be there. Unfortunately, they were forced to be there because of a tragic loss. And it also shows that the legislature can come together on a bipartisan basis. It takes a while, as this law did, to do the right thing. And, and I'm exceedingly proud of what they did this past session. And Brian, we've been talking about this issue for years, and there were some people who were opposed because you're taking away a freedom. But as you saw, family after family after family come forward, I think it finally just hit home. We've got to make a change that will impact every Minnesota. Well, this illustrates both the good and the bad about politics. The good is that they solved a problem. The bad is that it took a decade to do it, um, and, and there was some dysfunction along the way, but we finally got there. And ideally, poli politics can work like that for all kinds of problems, and, and uh, you know, maybe things like this can be the model. And it could be a model for what happens with the insulin issue that we just talked about with uh, the lawmakers. Uh, that's another issue. Every one of us knows somebody who has diabetes. Uh, it has impacted both of your families. Uh, most definitely it has. My concern is that we're, we're still looking at gimmicks. We're looking at things like, well, we'll buy down, the state will buy down the price of insulin versus really comprehensive health reform, which is what we need. And we need really comprehensive insurance reform. Right now, no one's looking at that side of the equation. I personally have a $7,500 annual deductible. I will never meet that. And, and so many other families are in that same position where they're paying out-of-pocket costs most of the year for prescription drugs they really need. And there clearly is a wider a health care problem, but insulin is one that strikes so many young people, older people. You've lost grandparents to diabetes. Uh, both of my father's parents died of type 2 diabetes, so uh, it runs in my family. It's something that I have to worry about constantly. Um, and, and, and I agree it is part of a bigger problem, but, uh, it, you know, if, if the two legislators that we saw talking in the earlier session, Senator Little, Little and Senator Jensen, were running things, these people know how to solve problems. And it's really nice to see politics resulting in good decisions that are going to benefit people. When you can take the far left and the far right, uh, maybe not totally out of the equation, but at least try to find middle ground. That's the way things get done. It can take time but it is important. Uh, last thing we want to get to, Senator Klobuchar has qualified for the next debate coming up in uh, September, uh, but where does her campaign stand right now as you look at it from a Republican perspective? Well, I, I think her biggest problem is, is the, the Democratic Party has a fight between the left and the far left, and I think they're banking on the fact that that uh, President Trump is so unpopular that people will vote for the Democrat nominee even in spite of some of the crazy things they're proposing. She was given a golden opportunity during that debate to criticize Sanders and Warren about maybe their positions are too extreme, and she didn't really take the bait. Was she being too Minnesota nice? <laughs> Not at all. I think the approach that she took was exactly the right approach. I think people are, are, are hungry for level-headed, politics that is not mean-spirited, that is not about personalities. And this was a make-or-break moment for Senator Klobuchar, and she made it, and, and part of the way that she made it was by being who she is. And we'll see her again next month in the, on the national stage. Annette and Brian, thanks for being here. Still to come this week on At Issue, one of the first golf courses designed for people with disabilities, and it's right here in Minnesota. I'll have a look at a special adaptive golf course in the works in Chaska and what makes it so unique.
Despite the brutally cold winters, Minnesota is known as a golf hotbed. Just this year, we've had the women's PGA at Hazeltine and the men's 3M Open at TPC Twin Cities. And soon, we could have one of the first golf courses designed specifically to be accessible to people with disabilities. I got a chance to take a look at the new course design in Chaska. This is a common sight on just about any golf course. This is a less common sight, but maybe not for long. To have a, a blank canvas, so to speak, to create from the ground up something that is going to be uh, accessible and open to uh, people like myself or with other physical challenges. John Dennis has been a paraplegic since a car accident at age 19. He's excited about the idea behind a unique and ambitious renovation of the Chaska Par 30. Our goal is to be 100% barrier free, um, really uh, whether it's a physical disability, uh, cognitive, financial, uh, barrier free, we want to have open doors to everybody. The proposed redesign is a public-private partnership between the city of Chaska and the Learning Links, a nonprofit that hopes to be a national model for making golf more accessible. We're redesigning a beautiful existing golf course, a golf space for our community where people of all ages, all abilities, and all experience can come and enjoy golf together. The course will feature more gradual terrain, shorter grass, and 10 par 3 holes, along with a new clubhouse, putting green, and some adaptive golf carts like this one from Courage Kenny. Golfers we talk to like the idea. And anytime you can open it up to anybody to play, it makes it for, you know, the golf's obviously a little bit of a decline, so why not make it for everybody, right? This golf course was designed by famed golf architect Robert Trent Jones 50 years ago. While the new design won't be exactly what he had in mind, the goal will be the same, to get more people enjoying the game of golf. Get up there. That is a great proposal. Chaska Par 30 is just down the street from Hazeltine National. The city and Learning Links are still working on how to finance the $2 million project. If you want to help Learning Links fund their portion, we have a link on our website at kstp.com where you can find much more information. That is all the time we have for now. We hope to see you back here again next week for another edition of At Issue.